LinkedIn presents. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, why everything you know about relationships is pretty much wrong. Eric Barker had no business writing a book about relationships. Getting me to write a relationship book is like asking Godzilla to improve the infrastructure in your city. Like, I'm really not the guy. And he's not just being self-deprecating. Eric's poor people skills are scientifically verified. You know, agreeableness is one of the fundamental personality traits. And I scored a four out of 100. You know, that's not good. No, it isn't. But rather than throw up his hands and resign himself to being a curmudgeon, Eric decided to do something about it. He went on a journey guided by leading social psychologists to better understand what he was getting wrong about relationships and what he could do to turn things around. The result is a new book called Plays Well with Others, the surprising science behind why everything you know about relationships is mostly wrong. Our curator, Daniel Pink, called it humorous and profound a book he added that will revitalize your life. In Plays Well With Others, Eric tests four maxims. Can you judge a book by its cover? Is a friend in need a friend indeed? Does love really conquer all? And is no man an island? The results will surprise you and change the way you think about friendship, intimacy, loneliness, and belonging. Plays Well With Others is Eric's second book. His first, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, was a Wall Street Journal bestseller. He's also the author of a blog by the same name, which is read by more than 500,000 people. One of those readers is the Next Big Idea Club's co-founder and editorial director, Panio Giannopoulos. And because Panio is such a big fan of Eric's work, we thought it would be fun to have him do this interview. I'm so glad we made that call because the conversation you're about to hear is funny and insightful Listening to it made me rethink the ways I maintain my existing relationships and how I go about forging new ones. Relationships, we learn from Eric Barker, take effort. But at the end of the day, they're always worth it. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Eric, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. It's great to be here, man. I loved your book, your new book, Plays Well with Others. The surprising science behind why everything you know about relationships is mostly wrong. I'm a big fan of your work. I've been reading your newsletter for years. I read your first book, Barking Up the Wrong Tree. Uh, What I really love is your contrarian impulse. You seem to love to give people bad news, or at least you start with bad news. You're just like, wait, wait, this is going to be terrible. Uh, But you do, you're very funny about it, even apologetic. You know, it doesn't feel malicious. It's just, it's the sort of myth-busting quality you have to your work. But I think it's why so many people love it, right? Because you try to find the actual truth behind a lot of these, you know, common sense beliefs that aren't necessarily actually accurate. Um, I've got to say, before we get into all these fascinating things that you discovered, how did you get into this kind of writing? Because it's a very specific sort of niche. It's weird. I, I actually started out after college as a screenwriter in Hollywood. So going from fiction to nonfiction is a very big shift because uh, you lose that ability to just make stuff up. But it's funny because I know a lot of other authors in similar genre, and they often have scientific or backgrounds or or something. They're good with their research, and they had to figure out how to tell stories. And for me, the issue was exactly the reverse: was I did get familiar with the research, and you know, telling the stories for me is the is the fun and easy part. So it was mm-hmm. uh, it's a transition. But you know, I don't try and fool anybody that you know I have a I have a PhD or anything. You know, for for me, it's about making it accessible. So I think it's it's a journey that I'm going on with the reader and I try to make it as fun and conversational as possible. 
it seems like you start from a question or a hypothesis. Like, I'm going to find out, like, can you judge a book by its cover? That's one of the questions you tackle in your book. And then do you know what you're going to do for research? Do you just start? I mean, I'm, I'm wondering how structured it is. Or do you just kind of like, I know a guy. Luckily, I've been I've been doing my blog looking at social science research for like 13 years now. So especially with, with the first book, like a lot of that was kind of already uploaded into my brain. So when I had mm-hmm. the maxims that I was stress testing, you know, it was pretty easy for me to go this, you know, oh, yeah, I remember this, this study, this is related. Uh, with Plays Well with Others, with the new one, it was it was a bigger challenge. I mean, I, I had some background, but yeah, I did kind of have to blue sky it. And there were challenges as a result of that. I mean, ironically, you know, when I'm when I'm stress testing, does love conquer all? Well, you know, there the amount of research on love and marriage is astronomical. You know, and trying to just whittle that down was a challenge. Meanwhile, testing friend in need is a friend indeed. Friendship research is thin. You know, there mm-hmm. there was not a lot there, and I really had to. So one was like trying to strain all of the internet and then the other one was like you know mining for gold was like where does has does anybody talk about this does anybody care about friends and right. so it was it was very different challenges for for each section actually well let's jump into friendship because i found that section really interesting and i agree there's not a lot out there there's the book by lydia denworth i think on yes, friendship because yes. we we covered that the next big idea club a few years ago and i was surprised by it and you say right off the back that you know, you, you share a stat. I love stats. Who doesn't, right? <laughs> Which is uh, more time with friends boosts smiling, the same as an additional $97,000 a year. Now, I love me some friends, but I don't know that I love them 100K. I mean, that seems like a huge amount. Like, how, how do they even come to a figure like that? I mean, because the issue is that when we think about money, like so much of we what we do with money doesn't necessarily directly impact happiness. We get fun mm-hmm. things, you know, it's like, but having the support, having the emotional connection of, of friends, that is direct, it's immediate. And the, the thing about friends, which, you know, most people don't know, which I was surprised to find out, you know, as Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman, you know, found, you know, friends make us happier than any other relationship, including spouses. And even within a marriage, the happiness inducing aspect of most powerful happiness-inducing aspect of the marriage is the friendship. So it's like that emotional connection. I hate to get cliche here, but you know, it, it, there is an aspect of it really that money can't buy. And you know, as I talk about in the book, the irony is that friends really don't get you know the respect and really get the attention, especially as we get older and get busier. We don't dedicate enough time to the thing that makes us happier than anything else. I was shocked by how significant even essential friendship is because I agree, culturally, it doesn't really come up. And you you say a great thing. I mean, it's very funny, a little bitter, but it's funny. You say the 30s are the decade where friendships go to die. You gather all your friends for your wedding and then promptly never see them again. And I know from personal experience, it's true. I mean, it's very often in your 30s, you start having families and you get pulled into taking care of children and you know marriages and all that. And then your friends very often get you know, sort of neglected for years. But if it's true that friendships are absolutely essential to happiness, it seems like this is something as a culture we should maybe highlight and and do something about. This is the paradox of freedom. I also get into this when I talk about the loneliness of community issues is we don't always do what's best for us. We we procrastinate. We we don't always go to the gym. We don't always eat right. And, and we don't always do what makes us happiest. You know, we, you know, often we, we do what's easy, you know, not necessarily mm-hmm. what's optimal. And yeah, it's like friends kind of get get put by the wayside. You know, if you have a problem with a spouse, you 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 get a marriage therapist. You have a problem mm-hmm. with your kids, you get a child therapist. You have a problem with your friend, oh well. You know, <laughs> um, I mean, that's that's you know, yeah. You don't have that's not built in. But the the irony is the fragility of friendship proves its purity. You know, the reason mm-hmm. why friends make us happier than any other relationship is that it's always voluntary. You know, there's no contract and there's no immediate concrete penalties for not following through, unlike these other relationships. But on the flip side, that is the reason why friends make us happier than anything else is because it's always voluntary. If they they didn't make you happy, you wouldn't be there. If you didn't like them, you wouldn't spend time with them. You can stop liking your kids. You can stop liking your spouse. You can definitely stop liking your boss. But if you stop liking your friends, you don't spend any time with them. So it's this tremendous irony where because there is nothing there but your desire and will, 
that guarantees that it's something that's that's going to make you happy. Like I said, its fragility proves its purity. You talk about uh, maintaining friendships, right? Because it's very easy to neglect a friendship. And I was surprised by the stats on this because you said to make contact once every two weeks at least. That was a research study by Notre Dame University. They looked at like 2 million phone calls over the span mm-hmm. of you know years. And basically what they could see was, okay, you're talking to this person six months later, or are you talking to this person? And the pattern they found was that people who touched base every two weeks those were the relationships that were likely to sustain. Because other research has shown that in seven years, half of close friendships are no longer close friendships. And one of the key things, patterns they found in the data was if you touch base every two weeks, those were the people who kept calling one another over the course of the study. Well, that's the funny thing about friendship, right? Is it's so uh, intangible in a way, right? I mean, I have a friend that I used to work with 15 years ago. We have not talked in 10 years. Are we still friends? I don't, I, I think so. Maybe not. Maybe they hate me. I don't know. You just don't know until you see them again. And then very often there's that phenomenon of suddenly the friendship's back a hundred percent. And you think, why did I wait 10 years to hang out with this guy? He's great. That's the most common pushback I hear from people. Oh, I, I have a friend who I, you know, I don't see for three years, and we get together, and it's it's like no time has passed. And I'm like, yeah, that's also survivor bias. You know, it's like <laughs> you're, you're you're not talking about the nine friendships where you didn't touch base, and now they're gone. And occasionally, you see them on your friend list on Facebook, and go, whatever happened to Jim? You know, it's, <laughs> it's like so you have to count those in as well. And so certainly there, there are some that sustain, you know, the passage of time. I mean, that there are some smokers who don't get cancer. We need to be a little bit more deliberate about that. Mm-hmm. But the problem is if, if we make it too deliberate, then it just becomes another task and it's, it's likely to right. fall back on. So, you know, what I talk about, because time is one of the critical factors when it comes to friendship, you know, simply because it's a, it's a, it's a very scarce resource and therefore it's a powerful signal that you care about someone that you're making time for them. We need to build people into our lives. When you get busy, if you can have something that is consistently on the calendar, you know, whether it's a consistent lunch, a book club, you go to the gym together, building people into the structure of your life is a really helpful way organically to maintain a friendship rather than making it like, you know, one more thing on your calendar and outlook. Yeah, that's good advice. And I think it's also tricky now because with so many people working remotely, you used to kind of have your work friends that would, you know, you'd get lunch together, you know, every Wednesday or something. And now with that gone, you do have to put a little effort into it. Well, it's it's really deceptive. I also talk about this in the love section, you know, is where love just happens to us. You know, it's like you don't flip a switch and choose to fall in love. It's this immediate thing that happens to you. And that's kind of deceptive in the sense that, you know, it, it feels passive. It feels like I don't. And as we all know, and as the research certainly shows, you know, as time goes on, we need to be proactive. This is true in friendships as well. It's like, I've seen a rash of articles online, you know, about making friends as an adult, proving that, you know, Mm -hmm. people are struggling with this. And again, I think it's that same approach where when you're a kid, you're in school, you know, you're in college. It's like you're, you're, you're naturally in this environment with your peers and you're kind of forced in a way to, to connect with them. And then when you get out into the working world, it can be very different. And the pandemic only accelerated that where all of a sudden what was passive, you know, what just kind of happened to us, we need to put a little, you know, elbow grease, a little bit deliberate effort into it. And, and that's a difficult transition. It, it kind of sets us up that, that, oh, this is going to be simple. And then we're very surprised when we have to be a little bit more proactive about it. When's the last time you made a new friend? Oh, that's, that's interesting. I mean, I, I don't know if I'm the modal case here, uh, you know, <laughs> like, because I definitely struggle. I mean, that's the, the, the attitude I take in the book is that I struggle with these things as, many, as much as anyone. Yeah. Well, in it, you know, in your defense, it's hard to make friends as an adult. It's, there's always a little bit of awkwardness. It is something weird. There's no doubt. There's no doubt mm-hmm. about that. But one thing that was very reassuring to me was that that issue of, you know, in the book, I go into Dale Carnegie, which is probably what everybody thinks of when they think of uh, how, to make, how friends. to make friends. And Carnegie's book is much more about business networking. But most of what he talked about is validated by the research. The only thing he got wrong was he talked about putting 
putting yourself in other people's shoes and seeing from their perspective. And Nicholas Apley's research shows that we're, we're pretty terrible at that. But that said, Carnegie stuff is great for the very beginning for like making acquaintances and networking. But when you take it to the next level, when you want to make the deep kind of friendships that you and I are talking about, it's like, yeah, it takes time. And the other thing I talk about is vulnerability. And there is that issue. Like you said, it's kind of awkward. You feel weird. You feel, we, we kind of feel that passivity aspect where it's like, you feel like I shouldn't have to put effort in or then it's not real or mm-hmm. I'm going to look stupid. I'm going to be rejected. And the truth is that there's in psychology, there's this thing called the beautiful mess effect, where it's the fact that we often forgive others a great deal of awkwardness, yet mm-hmm. we hold ourselves to a much higher standard. Like when someone else flubs something, we actually regard them usually in a warm fashion. Whereas our fear is that if we do something silly or awkward, we're just immediately going to be exiled to a distant village or put on a nice flow and like, you know, they're, we're, we're done. And in <laughs> the case, we have to realize that generally people are just as forgiving as we are with those flubs. And they actually make people human. They make people normal. It's really not that difficult. And that aspect of vulnerability, not only is it you know nice, not only is it helpful, but it's really powerful. Because when you talk about the things that you are scared about, when you are a little bit awkward, when you re- reveal those things, it makes you human. It tells the other person that you feel safe with them, that you trust them. And the research shows the best way to to get other people to trust you is to first put the trust in them. So that awkwardness, we really shouldn't fear it as much as we do. Sure, things happen and we look stupid. And those things stand out in our memory like neon signs. However, survivor bias, it's like we forget all the times that we did something silly and it bonded us to other people. And over time, the research shows that small talk creates a decline in friendship quality. When you just talk about the weather with people that you're supposed to be close to, it creates distance. We need to open up. We need to not be afraid to look stupid. We need to be able to, to do those things. It's, I could go on forever about the, the yeah. power of vulnerability. It's really critical. It's a huge thing. And it's, it's funny. I, I, I love hearing that fact about how small talk you know, almost de- degrades the quality of a friendship because I know that personally, uh, I'm very introverted, so I don't make a lot of friends. But when I do, they're very important to me, those friendships. And I hit a point at which I want the friendships to go deeper or I sort of don't want to keep going with a friendship. I mean, I can feel that within me. And I found that when I make the effort, nine times out of 10, it, it gets better. Like most people don't say like, well, hang on. I don't want to talk about my mom or like my childhood or whatever. Like people want to talk about themselves if they feel like they're not going to be judged. And if you're a good friend, you're, you won't. So most of the time it, it, it ends up turning out very well. Absolutely. And that's the thing is that a lot of people will complain about the quality of their relationships and that they don't feel supported. They do feel lonely and that, and that sucks. But we also have to, we do have to look and realize it's like, if you're not opening up, if you're not mm-hmm. sharing what you're dealing with, you know, what your challenges are, what scares you, how the heck do you expect other people to help you when they don't know what your problems are? You know, right. so it's, it's this natural kind of thing where, oh, my friends aren't really supporting me. It's like, well, did you tell them that you need help? We need to do that because it's, it's really, really powerful. And what we don't often realize is how negative it can be for us as individuals mm-hmm. where, you know, uh, I mean, loneliness is correlated with pretty much every negative health result that you can possibly imagine. Like doing that research scared the hell out of me while I'm sitting there in the middle of a pandemic writing this book by myself. (laughs) Um, You know, it's, but the thing is, when you're hungry, you know, you need to eat. When you're exhausted, you know, you need to sleep. But when we don't feel connected to others, the, the, that feeling is not as stark it's not mm-hmm. as clear. We can just feel a malaise. We can just feel sad. We can just feel down. It's not as clear what's going on there. And, you know, we need to open up to people so that they can they can assist us. And what you see, Robert Garfield did research at University of Pennsylvania, where 
this takes its toll on us is that people who aren't vulnerable with what they're dealing with are more like their their illnesses are prolonged. They're more likely to experience a first heart attack and that heart attack is more likely to be lethal. It's a lot of stress. John Cacioppo's research on loneliness, you know, shows that the elevation in stress hormones is the equivalent of a physical assault. So basically, loneliness is like getting punched in the face. But the irony of it, and Cacioppo called this the paradox of loneliness, is that loneliness is like a, it's basically klaxons going off in your head saying you, you are in, you know, if you're in danger, you're alone, you know, help is coming. But often, the result of feeling lonely is that we actually push people away, we distance ourselves further. And so sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, we sometimes we ignore the, the alarm, and the fire alarm, and, you know, and it can actually make things worse. So we, we do need to deepen those connections, not just make those kind of casual, soft, easy connections. And you make the distinction between loneliness and solitude, right? Because you can be, you can, loneliness is a feeling. You can feel lonely while surrounded by people. Yeah, this was some of the research that blew me away. Again, this is uh, John Cacioppo, where he found that on average, lonely people don't spend any less time with others than non-lonely people do, which at first I, I tell people that and they, they don't believe me. They, they want to mm -hmm. check me for head injuries. But when you think about it, like you said, you know, you can be in the middle of Times Square. You're going to be surrounded by people, but you're not necessarily going to feel connected to them. Loneliness is a subjective feeling. Loneliness is an internal experience. You know, loneliness isn't merely being proximate to people. Loneliness is how you feel about your relationships. If you have a strong family and great friends and you go on a business trip, you don't feel horribly, despairingly lonely. You might miss them, but you don't feel like this horrible, deep loneliness when you travel because you know they're there. And that's what it is. It's that knowledge of that connection. Yet, if you don't feel connected to people, you can be surrounded by people and, and still feel lonely. It's, it's about that meaningfulness uh, of those connections. And that's mm -hmm. why solitude, uh, Vivek Murthy, Surgeon General of the United States, said solitude is protective. Solitude is a positive thing in terms of our, our physical and mental health. And again, ostensibly, they're the same thing. Loneliness, mm -hmm. you're by yourself. Solitude, you're by yourself. But the distinction is that subjective experience is when you are away from people and you feel like nobody is thinking about you, nobody cares about you, that your brain at its you know, most fundamental level sees threat versus if you have strong relationships and you take some time to yourself to recharge, that is a total absolute positive. And it's really about our internal states and our perception of the depth and meaningfulness of our relationships. There was a stat that I found really alarming early on when you're talking about loneliness and about uh, Japanese youth not wanting to date because it's essentially too much hassle, right? And I have to say, I, that's my fear when I look at technical innovation and robots and AI and we, you know, where everything becomes customized right? To what we want. And, and the fundamental thing about people is they're their own people, right? They're not customized to what we want. And so I worry, you know, our, whether we're creating a world for the next generation or the next couple of generations where there's just, people are unwilling to compromise. And so they elect for a kind of, uh, you know, a, a kind of a loneliness, but like a tech assisted loneliness. I mean, again, it's that issue of, we don't always do what's best, we do what's easy. And that's the danger is for the vast majority of human existence, we had no choice but to be in communities. You know, and that's why Faye Alberti, uh, a historian at University of York, she found that before the 19th century, loneliness pretty much didn't exist, which again- Yeah, that blew my mind. Though yeah. just loneliness did not exist. <laughs> I mean, the word, you can see the word lonely used, but it's, it's merely meant it's it the, the word is used as this thing is isolated, but it doesn't have that negative spin on it where it's this terrible thing. It's only in the 19th century where industrial revolution, you know, so many rapid changes going on in the world where all of a sudden we were able to live apart. Before then, we were always embedded in religions, nations, tribes, communities, you know, and there just wasn't another option. Now we have the option to live apart. And that aspect of uh, this is easier. That mm -hmm. is really dangerous. Robert Putnam at Harvard did research looking throughout the 20th century about the death of community. You look back to the 1950s and you think about bowling leagues and the Elk Lodge and like all of these things that just seem archaic. 
And it's like, where did all that go? And what Putnam found was that it was basically television. It was the advent of TV replaced that. And we replaced those kind of deeper social connections with parasocial relationships, you know, television characters, that became sort of this replacement. It sort of cannibalized those real relationships. And mm -hmm. then I talk about in how 2000, uh, 2008, there was a writer's strike in Hollywood and a lot of TV shows stopped producing episodes. Researchers studied TV viewers and what they found was this was the emotional equivalent of a breakup. Those were real relationships to these people. And not having their quote-unquote friends uh, made them feel alone. And now, in the 21st century, that's only been accelerated with social media, you know, where we're replacing face-to-face -face time and community activities, you know, with Instagram and Facebook. And I, and I don't want to be one of these doomsayers who's like, oh, social media is awful and terrible. It's not necessarily. But we only have so much time in the day for socializing, and if we completely replace real friendship connections and real mm -hmm. emotional connections, you know, with social media, that's like living on a diet of junk food. Like it's, it's really not as, you know, emotionally nutritious to us. I've caught myself doing the same thing and I probably shouldn't besmirch podcasts while I'm interviewing someone on a podcast. <laughs> um, but I was listening to a podcast and it was one of those podcasts, you know, based on a TV show where you've got the actors or creators just talking and I would tune in every week and I realized one day, I felt kind of pathetic because I thought, oh my God, these, these guys, they're friends and I'm just hanging around as if I were their friend, <laughs> you know? No, I've done, the, I've done the same thing where, you know, I've, I've been so busy with all this book stuff and I'm working on some grunt work and I'll, I'll like, oh, I should put on, I don't want these, I'll put, I'll put on, you know, a podcast. I'm putting on an episode I've already listened to in the background. Mm -hmm. And I had the same realization where I'm like, is this like some sort of pseudo friendship in some sort of like <laughs> Philip K. Dick novel? Like, you know, I don't think we're, we're realizing that it's like so much of this is, is due to the fact that we're, we're not like, it's great. We have so much more freedom that we're not embedded in groups that inevitably will, will have social pressures upon us, you know, on the flip side, Without that pressure that we evolved to kind of have, we can be lazy and that can have like really strong emotional and mental health impacts that, again, are not immediately apparent to us, or at least the causes aren't immediately apparent to us. And we just wonder why we feel a little down or we feel this kind of like ever-present hum of anxiety. And, and that's what that is. Mastering the art of friendship is hard. But you know what's even harder? Mastering the art of love. After the break, Eric and Panio discuss the futility of active listening, the similarities between love and addiction, and why you and your partner really need to schedule that date night. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. Well, let's move on to love because this was a fun one. <laughs> love was great. As someone who's um as someone who's been married now for I should know this number, but I don't. It's been a while. Almost we, we 20 can years. Start out. You we don't, don't want to get in trouble at home. You know what it is? It's been so blissful. I don't even try to quantify yeah, it. See, there you go. Um but uh I was thrilled, first of all, that right off the bat you First of all, well, first, actually, you start with a lot of warnings, like, <laughs> um, heads up, I'm going to destroy your worldview of love. <laughs> but then you talk about how active listening doesn't work. 
And I love that because I feel like that's a very common piece of advice given by therapists, couples therapists, whomever, you know, oh, you need to active listen. You need to repeat what the person says. And, and to me, I can't do it with a straight face because it just sounds so patronizing. Yeah. Um, and apparently it doesn't really work unless I guess you're negotiating with a hostage. The issue there is that it does work in theory. It's kind of like me saying, oh, yeah, you can be UFC heavyweight champion. Just walk into the ring and uh, and just knock the guy out. Uh, it's that simple. <laughs> and you're like, don't complicate it. You're like, in theory, that works. But I don't know if I can do that. That other man is very scary. Um, <laughs> that's the issue is that it works if you can do it. Most people can't do it. Most people, when in those situations, emotions are running high, adrenaline's running high, and they can't be that calm and deliberate and non-reactive. It is very successful in therapy situations and, as I talked about at the beginning of the book, hostage negotiations, because you're a third party. You are not the person that the finger is being pointed at. So in that situation, active listening, you don't feel like you're being attacked. Once it's a relationship argument, when it's you who didn't take out the trash, now all of a sudden it's very hard to not want to come back over the top and start making defensive accusations, you know, or to start criticizing. So it's a great idea, but it's not something most people can realistically accomplish in a relationship discussion. One thing you say is, you know, traditionally or historically, perceptions or metaphors for love are love is a kind of sickness right from ancient greece and it's this very popular metaphor it's a it's a it's an affliction and a, almost like a fever and, and and eventually we burn it off um but you say that it can actually be taken quite literally that if you look at our brain when we're in love in an mri it's hard to tell the difference between a loving brain and an ocd brain when you look at people in the heights of new love it is effectively indistinguishable from mania. And I, I actually quote Frank Tallis, who is a psychiatrist, who, who said, you know, if, if, you, if you went in and if you went into a therapist and described, uh, you know, your feelings and didn't mention, you know, love, you, you might walk out with a prescription for lithium. Uh, <laughs> by the same token, you know, when you look at people in, you know, after a breakup, it looks like major depressive episode. And that's surprising. When you look at people under an MRI, it's like you definitely see OCD features. The thing that it most closely re resembles is addiction. Love is so tied into the reward system. Looking at an MRI scan of someone who is newly in love and someone who is addicted to you know amphetamines or opiates, they look almost indistinguishable because basically Arthur Aaron, who's done a lot of research in this area, basically says that, you know, love is a motivation system in that mm -hmm. same way where you and I were just talking about how, especially in the modern era where we're so comfortable and where we don't have to have other people to survive and we get lazy and we don't do the things necessary. Love is there to address that. Love is like, okay, you're, you're going to procrastinate. I'm taking the wheel. <laughs> And that's mm -hmm. why love feels like that, where it's just this overwhelming feeling and this drive to connect with the other person. But again, the difficulty there lies in, you know, over time, typically that mad, passionate love does die down. And we're usually not prepared for that in the context of a long-term relationship. We usually have this feeling that whatever's going on is going to continue. So, so that's, that's where, again, being proactive and deliberate really does play a strong part in all our relationships. Well, we're pretty terrible at emotional forecasting. Oh, absolutely. We, we tend to feel like whatever we're feeling is going to continue. So, you know, we have a cultural script of soulmates and magic, and that all feels wonderful. Unfortunately, polls show those people actually struggle more in relationships mm -hmm. because that, that aspect of magical thinking lets you have a passive perspective. And that's really dangerous for relationships over the long haul. Well, you make a distinction, right? You say at one point, I believe that love is a verb, the idea that you know, falling in love is very easy. It, it just, it's like contracting an illness, but a good one, a fun one. But staying in love is not, you can't just sit around the couch. I mean, there, there are things you need to do to maintain closeness, to keep things interesting, keep, keep, stay intimate with each other. I don't just mean physically, I also mean emotionally. Yeah, like one of the critical things was uh, one study split couples into two cohorts. One went on pleasant dates, one went on exciting dates. And let me tell you, exciting one, because 
there's this principle uh, in psychology called emotional contagion, where whatever environment we're in, those feelings, those emotions that we're experiencing, we're going to associate those Pavlov style with the people around us. So if you're having yet another night of Netflix and pizza, that can get kind of boring and you are probably going to associate that with your partner as opposed to if you are going out, you know, on fun dates, you're going to concerts, you're going skiing, you know, you're going to roller coasters, you will associate those fun feelings with your partner. You know, a lot of people, you know, we have, again, people get busy, dies down, we do less, we're not as proactive and people feel like, oh, well, we did those fun things when we were first dating because we were falling in love. Mm -hmm. And that's true. But the reverse is also true. You fell in love because you did those fun, exciting things together. And if you want to sustain it, that needs to be a part of it. Again, that sort of magic soulmates thing can work against us by making us passive, as opposed to realizing we need to generate and sustain, you know, those those positive feelings, especially as a relationship goes on, because we don't have that wonderful magic, utter insanity of love, you know, like of, of early love that is driving us crazy and, you know, motivating us to do these things. We, we need to, you know, you need to have date nights, but they, they need to be date nights that are, uh, you know, a little, a little bit more, you know, a little <laughs> bit more exciting and a little bit more, a little more viscerally intoxicated. Yeah. And maybe sort of an element of novelty to it as well. Absolutely. Like that is a huge, huge part uh, in the psychology literature. They call it self-expansion. When we feel like we're growing as a person due to this other person, mm -hmm. that's really huge as opposed to the day after day turning into Groundhog Day where it's just the same old thing. That's boring. And as we all know, if I have a problem, of course, it's not my fault. It's your fault. So you're doing this. And that's how marriages start to go south versus like, saying like, okay, what can we learn together? What we can explore together? It's one of the reasons why travel is like so wonderful, so great. Why do couples do enjoy it so much when they do it is you're learning, you're exploring, there's novelty, you're growing and, and you're doing it together. There's also an element, and you discuss this in the book, where love is increasingly expected to sort of um, satisfy every aspect of our lives, right? So it used to be that you know, you'd get satisfaction from all these different things. You had a community, maybe you, you know, maybe you had family close to you, you had your friends. And now more and more, it's all in the, the marital relationship. It's supposed to sort of bring you spiritual fulfillment, emotional fulfillment, you know, all that stuff. And so this seems like maybe a good opportunity for us to kind of offload some of the stuff onto friendships, right? Because those are helpful. And yet they're not really doing as much as they could be doing for us. I mean, definitely that's, that's part of it. It's, it's, we've definitely been our culture has been moving in the direction of, you know, marriage as the relationship, you know, and this has basically been proven by happiness studies where over the past few decades, what you've seen is a strengthening of the correlation between marital satisfaction and happiness. Not that you have to be married, but that marital satisfaction has become a bigger and bigger determinant of personal happiness. And so, we are kind of all in on marriage because there was a tremendous shift. Historically, you know, marriage was more about getting powerful in-laws. You know, I, I refer to it as the help me not die marriage. You know, through <laughs> most of human history, you know, it was about building connections with powerful families because you, you don't need marriage to fall in love. You don't need marriage to have children. You do need marriage to build associations so that you will live and you will thrive. You know, but marriage was also very restrictive and very dictated and we didn't have much flexibility now in the modern era that is completely flipped and that has produced a very strange shift in marriage over just like the past century where what you see now is that fewer people are getting married the average marriage is not as happy as it was that's the bad news the good news is if you do the work you know if you customize your marriage, if you treat it like a do-it-yourself kit, the happiest marriages in the modern era are happier than any marriages that have ever existed. We have that flexibility and freedom to make it whatever we want to be because we don't have the social, religious, cultural pressures to handle it in a specific way. But again, once again, that requires us being a little bit deliberate 
proactive, communicating with our partner, figuring out what we want, and you know, really treating it systematically in a way because we can't rely on social pressure unless unless you're Amish. If you're Amish, this doesn't count. You don't have to listen to me. Um, but <laughs> like, that should be the have, subtitle of the book. If you're Amish, exactly, it's like if you have those cultural pressures, then stability is all but expected. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have those pressures, you need to create a structure for yourself. The good news is if you're deliberate about that, you can create a custom tailored, perfect marriage that honors what both of you want and can make you happier than any couple has been throughout all of history. Is it hard to do that though? Because, well, obviously it just sounds hard, but in addition, um, you know, love is supposed to be this irrational thing and does demystifying it sort of turn a partner off or a a new partner off i mean possibly but we're we're not really talking about the early stages of love and dating right we're we're talking about over the course of a marriage and i think i think over the course of the marriage the majority of people start to realize that there's just going to be a level of practicality you know i mean there's going to be a level of things you need to do i mean the concept of date night is well established enough where i can say it you know what i mean where Mm -hmm. you know at a certain level we do need to schedule things compromises are necessary there's a level of practicality you can still have magic magic's in the moment Mm -hmm. but we do need in such a busy world with so many things competing for our attention over you know a marriage that will hopefully last decades yeah you're going to have to build those systems. That can happen organically. It can happen very deliberately. But we need to address these things because if you don't, you're going to end up in a very different structured system, which is therapy, and then a different structured system, which is divorce court. Coming up after the break, Eric answers the biggest question of all, what is the meaning of life? We'll be right back. You know, I think it could be useful to take a step back and tell you a little bit more about why we do what we do at the Next Big Idea Club. We do it because our lives have been transformed by books. Fresh ideas from the world's great thinkers we find both fascinating and useful. And yet we know that books can be really long. And we have limited time. We know that you're busy. There is a universe of brilliant ideas stuck in books trying to get out trying to get into your ears. So we created the Next Big Idea app, which delivers the key insights from the best new books directly into your ears in only 12 minutes from the authors themselves. This part is important. Other book summary apps summarize books without permission from the authors who deliver the heart and soul of these books. We want to give you the authentic article and we want to help authors succeed. We want their ideas to be discovered. And we hope that after downloading our app, you will also buy their books. Every time someone downloads our app and every time someone subscribes and joins our community, it puts a bounce in the step of all of the nine amazing members of the Next Big Idea Club team, guaranteed. You subscribe and you will put a bounce in our step, maybe two. Please join us. Just search for Next Big Idea wherever you get your apps. There is no better way to get smart fast and no better way to put a bounce in our steps. Download the Next Big Idea app right now. The end of the book is very ambitious. I have to applaud you for deciding that you are going to answer the question of what is the meaning of life? That was uh, definitely something I didn't initially intend. Uh, I was just that that seemed like too big, but you had a few, it, you know, five pages. Let's knock it out. Yeah. I mean, it was, <laughs> you know, I needed, I, I needed a little bit of filler before I ended the book. When we asked the question, what creates a feeling of meaning in life? What makes us feel that there is meaning in our lives? It's very clearly the issue of belonging. This is research by Roy Baumeister, where the issue of belonging feeling in a group where you're connected, you're supported. This is what produces the feeling of meaning in our minds. And that is the only meaning that is meaningful. That is the only meaning we will ever know. And so that issue of belonging, which sadly in many ways is lacking in the modern world, you know, belonging is critical. That, that's what makes life meaningful. And, and we can have it. There are things we can do to, to get there, you know, definitely. So what are, what are some ways we can boost a sense of belonging? What comes to mind? 
I mean, first and foremost is deepening those relationships. Like we mm -hmm. talked about with friendship, where time and vulnerability are the critical factors that deepen friendships, really getting to know someone, you know, in the context of love, John Gottman, the leading researcher on marriage, calls it love maps, you know, where really getting to know your partner. Now that sounds cliche. I know people have heard that a thousand times, uh, but I'm not talking about what TV shows they like or how they like their coffee. I'm talking about big, hard questions. Asking your partner, what does marriage mean to you? What is a good husband to you? What is a good wife to you? What does love mean? Those are tough questions and the vast, vast majority of people don't ask them. But getting the answers to those questions is kind of like, that's like getting answers to the test. That's <laughs> <It's> like, because <laughs> those answers, I mean, if you go deep enough, are going to be very idiosyncratic. They're going to be very personal. Mm -hmm. And you're going to realize that they don't line up with yours. And that's not a negative thing, but it's probably going to explain a lot of the challenges you've faced to understand that this thing, which doesn't mean much to you, is a huge signal of love to them. And that thing, which means so much to you, they didn't realize how much it meant. You can work together to find something that honors both of your values. But if you don't communicate it, again, these are idiosyncratic elements. They're not written objectively on the wall for everyone. If you don't ask, you'll never know. So it's like that deepening by getting to know, by asking really hard idiosyncratic questions is key. And then the other part is really looking at the issue of communities. You know, there was a 2020 study that leapt out to me because they looked at people and they, they found that basically, if you have five friends and they don't know each other, and if you have five friends who do know each other, there's a huge difference there, huge, mm -hmm. in terms of happiness and support. Because if it's this hub and spoke relationship where you have five friends, but they're not connected, that's great on a one-on-one -on -one basis. But once you have friends who all know each other, it starts to become a community. There's a synergy there. And I don't mean that in the usual shallow sort of way. I mean, in the sense that they can coordinate. You can work together to throw a party for your friend. If you're feeling down, one friend can say it to another friend and they can do something for you. There is an a tremendous added value in communities and groups that even with the same number of people on a one-off basis can't add. And we really need to think about how to build that back in and not to necessarily do it online in a very shallow, casual way. When you look at the research on online support groups, there are people, a lot of people online support groups who feel depressed. If you look at the same kinds, whether it's for breast cancer, prostate cancer, whatever, those groups face-to-face, -face, depression levels drop off huge. There's something to that really deep-seated connection as opposed to posting on a forum or just sending a direct message. You know, so really mm -hmm. going deep with time and vulnerability with friends, love maps, asking those tough questions with romantic partners, and starting to go from individual friends to community. These are all things we can do to really deepen all of our relationships and get to that meaningful feeling of belonging. Those are fantastic suggestions. And you include in the book a link to a series of questions that you can ask. Uh, it doesn't have to be a loved one, but why not? <clears throat> and yeah. I tried that actually last night at the dinner table. <laughs> um, I, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm talking to Eric tomorrow about it. Like, well, let's try it out, see how it goes. And so I tried a bunch of the questions with my wife and my son was there. And I have to say, he, you know, he's 12, almost 13. So he's not particularly forthcoming right now. And he opened up more in this one conversation after dinner than in a year. I couldn't believe it. You know, in the beginning, he was kind of goofy and joking around, but then he got really sincere about it. First and foremost, I cannot tell you how happy I am that uh, you did that. That makes that really warms my heart. This is work by Arthur Aaron, who, if you look at the majority of the research, uh, I think Jeff Hall did most of the research showing how long it takes to make a friend. And it's like dozens of hours, or for best friends, it's like hundreds of hours. And Arthur Aaron did this research, that, that, that list of questions you're talking about. And he was able to make people feel like lifelong friends in 45 minutes. And it's staggering for both friendships and also for romantic relationships. It was extremely powerful to just have people really talking about these kind of things we don't talk about. And some of the questions aren't like, you know, super utterly personal or embarrassing, but just to really give your opinion mm -hmm. and perspective and your feelings. Um, it's not only has it been powerful in terms of its academic research, yada, yada, 
But when Arthur Aaron was first putting these questions together, the two research assistants who were working on the project with him actually fell in love and got married. <laughs> That's so great. Yeah, I could. I mean, you can see how it happens because they're, the questions as you go along, some of them are really seem, you know, like, who would you have for over for dinner? You know, like just basic questions. But they go deep and then they also go a little more shallow, but they are a way of really expressing curiosity. And you usually only do that when you first meet someone. So it's a way to kind of revitalize a relationship, I, I think. I mean, based on having done it once, but still, I was pretty impressed. Well, that's, that's the thing, like you just said, is that very often we, we have this phase early on in any relationship of getting to know someone where we learn so much. Uh, and then we base the further years on utter assumption. And, <laughs> People change. We all change to, to some degree. Our fundamental personalities may not change as much, but our preferences, our ideas, our perspectives, and certainly our feelings can change day to day or for me, minute to minute, but we don't need to talk about that. And people might think, oh, some of these questions are who would you have for dinner? That's not, but it's still underneath it, it shows what does this person value? What are their priorities? What are their values? What are their beliefs? What do they want more than anything? You start to see, especially over the course of more and more questions, you start to see patterns, you start to see deeper understanding that you just don't you just don't get by like typical interactions like going to Starbucks. Uh, well, Eric, thank you so much for uh, joining us today and, and talking uh, about, I mean, so many fascinating topics. Uh, I didn't I feel like I touched on maybe two percent of all the amazing things you share in your book. Thanks so much for being here. It was great. Thank you. That was the Next Big Idea Club's co-founder and editorial director, Panio Giannopoulos, speaking with author Eric Barker about his new book, Plays Well with Others. If you want to try a few of Arthur Aaron's intimacy-building questions at dinner tonight, you can find a link to them in the episode notes. And if you want to hear Eric summarize the book in just 12 minutes, download the Next Big Idea app and search for Eric's book bite. While you're there, you can hear hundreds of book summaries read by the authors themselves. Plus, we've got e-courses, bonus episodes of this show, and exclusive content featuring our curators, Adam Grant, Malcolm Gladwell, Daniel Pink, and Susan Kane. All you have to do is go to your app store and search for Next Big Idea. If you like this show, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. And if you're up for it, we'd be really grateful if you take a minute and leave us a rating and a review. It really helps us out. Our executive producers are Caleb Bissinger and Michael Kovnat. Sound design by Mike Toda. We give the team at LinkedIn a perfect score on the agreeableness scale. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. See you next week.